A word of caution. This episode features descriptions of people who may have been victims of homicide and or sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised for anyone under the age of 13 or who is sensitive to these topics in particular. A female police officer patrolling a normally quiet and serene island off the coast of North Carolina notifies her partner late one night that she is approaching three individuals near the lighthouse. She is found murdered a short time later with her own gun, and her death is at first ruled a suicide, upsetting her family and close friends. What really happened to Davina Buff Jones? An elderly woman in Charlotte sets off to a nearby cemetery to visit the grave of her deceased mother. A few hours later, after a brutal assault, her body is found hidden inside a mausoleum on the grounds by a group of young boys. Investigators believe they found the man responsible, but the justice system in North Carolina wasn't so sure. Who murdered Foy Dixon Cooper? A Charlotte resident named Franklin Freeman was a vivacious fixture in the community and was well known for dressing in drag and performing as a character known as Aretha Scott. He had also been working as a prostitute in Uptown Charlotte, and one night he tangled with an off-duty police officer who had been drinking. The incident shook up the police department, and before Franklin Freeman, also known as Riri, could testify in a civil suit, he was found murdered. In 1966, a brutal triple homicide stunned the small community of Hendersonville, North Carolina. Two men who owned a local music store were found bludgeoned to death, along with an older woman they weren't known to have ties with. The case has received national attention over the years, and on the 40th anniversary of the murders, a seasoned journalist dug deeper into the mystery. While police believe they know who committed the murders, lost evidence means the case may never be truly resolved. For this bonus episode, I wanted to focus on several unresolved murders in my home state rather than missing people. In my research, I was both surprised and disappointed in the way that murdered people in the LGBTQ community have been treated over the years. Two of the cases in this episode feature people who lived lifestyles others may not have agreed with, but in my professional opinion, that doesn't mean they deserve to be murdered or their cases left to gather dust. There are a number of missing persons cases right here in the Carolinas, and some have received more media attention than others. These are the stories that tug at our heartstrings, make us pray it never happens to anyone in our families, and wonder if there is still any way to find closure for these missing persons and their loved ones. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Episode 28, Unresolved Cases in North Carolina. By now, I think it's pretty clear that while people in the Carolinas love to visit the coastal towns for their miles of sandy beaches, there are mysteries and secrets hiding just below the surface. That's the case of Baldhead Island in North Carolina, where a 33-year-old police officer named Davina Buff Jones died in 1999, and no one can seem to agree on whether it was a suicide or murder. Although I've lived in this state since the late 1980s, I had not heard of Jones's story until I read the recently published True Crime Stories of Eastern North Carolina by Kathy Pickens. 
After further research, I also discovered a comprehensive article written by Adam Rue that ran in March of 2014 in Charlotte Magazine. Bald Head Island is located on the east side of the Cape Fear River, a 20-minute ferry ride from the town of Southport. Cars are prohibited on the island, so guests can either take golf carts or travel by foot to traverse the island. Jones grew up in Charlotte, where her parents owned a popular steakhouse that she worked at all through high school. In the Charlotte Magazine article, her parents described her as energetic, spirited, but also prone to mood swings. They described it as classic middle child syndrome. They eventually retired to Oak Island, and after trying out a few other career paths, Jones attended law enforcement training so she could become a police officer. She was the oldest in her class at the time, and probably the smallest, standing only five feet tall and weighing maybe 100 pounds. She took a job with the Baldhead Island Police Department about nine months before her death. By all accounts, she struggled in the position. Longtime residents of the island complained when she tried to enforce rules, leaving her in a precarious position with department members who sometimes looked the other way or issued initial warnings to renters and residents before issuing citations. Jones had also filed a sexual harassment complaint against a local EMS worker, leaving her in a vulnerable position. She told her parents she was looking for another job. On the night of October 22, 1999, Jones rode the ferry to Baldhead Island for the 12-hour shift that started at 6.30 p.m. Kathy Pickens shared in True Crime Stories of Eastern North Carolina that Jones's boss, Chief Karen Grasty, had asked her to patrol with another officer and not alone as a protection in case any of the residents complained about her so there could be another officer present. Jones and her partner, an officer named Keith Ray Crane, patrolled in separate vehicles because Jones's feet could best reach the pedals in her Ford Ranger pickup truck. They took a dinner break around 10 p.m., which was interrupted by a call about a missing golf cart from a cafe near the marina, and then they returned to the single-story trailer on the center of the island that served as the police headquarters. Officer Crane attempted to finish his dinner, but Jones was restless. Having been married and divorced twice, she had recently broken up with her boyfriend, a police officer from a nearby jurisdiction. Jones told Officer Crane she was going out to ride around and left. She stopped at a payphone a little after 11 p.m. to call her ex-boyfriend, and he described their conversation as one where they agreed they would remain friends. She then got in her truck and headed off in the direction of Old Baldy, the oldest of the seven remaining lighthouses on the North Carolina coast. At night, the area around the lighthouse is not well lit. There's a golf cart path that runs parallel to it. At 11.48 p.m., Jones called into dispatch saying, CCOM 4206, show me out with three. Stand by. Stand by, please. She had stopped her vehicle to approach three individuals. The next words she said were, There ain't no reason to have a gun here on Baldhead Island, okay? You want to put the gun down? Come on, do us a favor and put down. What followed was what sounded like electronic crackling. Jones's partner, Officer Crane, 
heard the transmission, and headed out to his vehicle as soon as he heard her approaching a group of individuals. When he arrived, he found her truck running and facing the lighthouse. The heavy flashlight she always carried at night was on the seat of the truck. Jones was lying face down on the road behind the vehicle. She had no pulse when he checked. Her service gun, a 40 caliber Glock semi-automatic, was on the ground with her right hand resting on it. He immediately called paramedics for backup. What happened after the discovery of Jones's body would lead to many years of questions and a cause of death that changed over time. The bottom line is, the crime scene wasn't contained properly, despite the request of the police chief, who was out on disability but made her way to the island when she discovered what had happened. When first responders arrived on the scene, they weren't sure if suspects were still anywhere in the area. They picked Jones up and moved her to a separate location. Her hands weren't bagged to preserve any evidence. Her body was transported to the ferry dock and left out in the open for several hours. The crime scene was not properly photographed. Also, a prominent Bald Head Island family was planning to have a wedding near the lighthouse that weekend. So the fire department was asked to hose blood off the crime scene, which included blood smeared on the back of Jones's service vehicle and drag marks, despite the police chief's orders. Photos later showed that Jones's Glock was removed from the ground and placed on the floorboard of her truck. Jones's autopsy took place quickly in nearby Southport so investigators could learn what they were dealing with as soon as possible. She died of a gunshot wound to the back of the head, and the medical examiner drew a small circle below her right ear to indicate the location of the bullet hole. But photos taken during the examination showed the wound directly in the center on the back of Jones's skull. A few days later, after the regional medical examiner in Jacksonville had reviewed the case, he indicated suicide was highly possible and that she had likely been shot by her own gun. Her family was horrified. This is what Charlotte Magazine writer Adam Rue shared in his article about the case. Seven weeks after Davina's death, Brunswick County Prosecutor Rex Gore released a written statement to the media. I am satisfied that Miss Jones was killed by her own gun and by her own hand, Gore wrote. He listed several factors that led to the decision. A lack of credible suspects, the gunshot wound to the head, and a forensics test performed by the FBI crime lab confirming the bullet that killed Davina came from her own gun. In True Crime Stories of Eastern North Carolina, Kathy Pickens pointed out Jones had spoken to her father and at least one other law enforcement officer about possible drug smuggling in the area. Could she have stumbled across a drug deal in progress by the lighthouse and died when the suspects decided to eliminate the only witness? Jones's family continued to insist she wouldn't have killed herself by her own hand. What about her call to dispatch saying she was out with three? She had two Australian shepherds alone at her home that she adored, and she had made a list of errands that she wanted to run after her shift ended. To her family, just because she'd struggled with depression in the past and was on medication did not mean she would impulsively take her own life out in the dark in the middle of a night shift on Bodhead Island. The police chief at the time of Jones's death, Karen Grasty, 
was interviewed for an article that ran in Forbes magazine, written by Stacy Dittrich. She said the morning after the murder, three men were caught trying to sneak off the island on the ferry. They were questioned and released. When she wanted to go to Charlotte to re-interview the men, her superiors told her to let it lie. It is her belief that Jones did happen to interrupt a drug transaction and died as a result. Jones's family filed civil proceedings with the North Carolina Industrial Commission as they believed their daughter had been killed on the job. The suicide ruling prevented the family from receiving any death benefits Jones was entitled to. They filed proceedings as a way to clear their daughter's name above and beyond any financial compensation. In 2005, the Industrial Commission held hearings where attorneys from both the state of North Carolina and for the family presented evidence in Jones's case. Author Kathy Pickens noted that some town officials and the police chief believed Jones was murdered. Others believed the suicide ruling by District Attorney Gore benefited the residents and land developers for Baldhead Island. No one wanted to believe you could be killed just by walking around the pristine island after dark. The commission ruled it was highly unlikely Jones could have held her pistol to achieve the trajectory that resulted and that she was likely killed in the line of duty. Her estate received $50,000 plus an additional $12,500 in attorney's fees. The U.S. Department of Justice awarded $147,000 from the Federal Public Safety Officers Benefits Office. In 2011, Rex Gore was defeated in the race for Brunswick County District Attorney by John David. David decided to re-examine Jones's case and ultimately determined that her cause of death be ruled undetermined rather than a suicide. The Wilmington Star News quoted David as saying, we cannot definitively say it wasn't suicide or definitively say it's murder. Because it is undetermined, the case will remain opened. He also noted that keeping the file open does not mean a new investigation into the case. I'd like to talk now about a woman named Foy Dixon Cooper. This is a story David Aaron Moore wrote about in his book, Charlotte, Murder, Mystery, and Mayhem. At around 5 p.m. on Sunday, September 20, 1959, a group of young boys gathered in the Elmwood Cemetery in Charlotte to play and chase squirrels and chipmunks like they often did. Playing in a cemetery could involve quite a bit of creative role-playing for energetic children. So when one boy, Dale Jackson, dared Ronnie McCauley to enter a nearby crypt so he could meet Dracula, the youngster didn't back down. McCauley stuck his hand and then his head into the opening of the crypt, screaming, Hey, there's a real dead woman in here. The boys reached into the hole, poking the body with a stick, and when the figure didn't move, they ran for help. By the time the police arrived, a crowd of onlookers had already gathered at the cemetery. They had to break the entrance of the mausoleum in order to remove the victim's bloodied and battered body. The woman was transported to a local funeral home where a man named Frederick Cooper arrived and identified her as 78-year-old Foy Bell Dixon Cooper, his mother. 
Foy was a widow who was in the habit of walking from her home in the third ward to Elmwood Cemetery, where her mother, Annie Dixon, had been buried since 1945. Foy would take along the small dog who was her loyal companion and pack a lunch that she would eat on the shady grounds of the cemetery. But in recent years, both Elmwood Cemetery and the nearby Pinewood Cemetery, which was reserved for the city's black residents, had become a haven for members of the homeless population and the site of criminal activity. Foy paid no mind to the transient people often hanging out on the grounds or sleeping on the benches. But on the day she died, her son Frederick had been unable to reach her by phone the entire day, which he found unsettling. When he heard reports of a body being found in Elmwood Cemetery, he had a sinking feeling it was his mother, Foy Cooper. At the time, News reports called Foy's murder the most vicious of the decade. As police began their investigation, they learned the following things. A neighbor reported Foy and her dog had left her home around 1 p.m. She stopped at a nearby store to drop off a carton of empty soda bottles and likely entered the cemetery around 1.30 p.m. Witnesses in the cemetery reported hearing the single yelp of a dog a little after 2 p.m., a boy witnessed a man crouched in the overgrowth behind a bench Foy liked to sit on around the same time. At Foy's autopsy, the county coroner was quoted as saying Foy died from internal injuries caused by external violence. The external violence included a head injury and strangulation, as there was heavy bleeding found in her throat tissue. He also believed she had been raped. During their investigation, police found a pair of old trousers and a shirt covered in blood and paint hanging on a hedge a few blocks from the crime scene. They believed the items may have belonged to the killer. Foy's purse, which was wrapped in newspaper, was found behind a hedge a short distance away from the mausoleum where she was found. Her hairnet and a short length of rope were also in the area. For anyone wondering what happened to Foy's dog, that's also a mystery. The lifeless body of the dog was found lying on top of Annie Dixon's grave, a pattern of sticks arranged around the body. An external examination could not determine a cause of death, and police theorized the dog had died of fright. As to what happened to Foy, police believe she was grabbed near her mother's grave, dragged across a fence, sexually assaulted, and then carried back a hundred yards down a hill to the mausoleum, where the perpetrator hid her body. The day after Foy's murder, police began identifying suspects. When they heard a 32-year-old man named Elmer Davis Jr. had been arrested in Belmont, Charlotte officers brought him in for questioning. The man had been serving 15 to 20 years for assault on a female, robbery, and an attempted rape when he escaped from a work camp. When arrested, Davis was carrying identification papers for a man named Bishop Buren Hayes. Hayes claimed his wallet and shoes had been stolen while he was sleeping off a bender on a bench in, you guessed it, Elmwood Cemetery. The items were stolen on September 20th, the same day Foy Cooper was murdered. The crime Davis had been doing prison time for was attacking an elderly woman near a creek. Davis was a black man who had not grown up under the best of circumstances. His mother had murdered his father when he was just a small child, 
and the uneducated young man had begun engaging in criminal activity when he was a teenager, serving his first prison sentence at the young age of 15. After Foy Cooper's murder, he was held in the city jail in Charlotte for 16 days and given small meals like sandwiches and peanuts. There are conflicting reports of what happened during that time. Davis, who couldn't read, would later claim he was told if he signed a piece of paper, he could get out of jail and go take a bath. Police said he had confessed to the crime, which they then dictated on the piece of paper. The case went to trial, and in 1959, Davis was convicted of murder and sentenced to die in North Carolina's gas chamber. From prison, Davis would appeal his case three different times, in 1962, 1964, and 1966, before the decision was reversed and he was allowed to walk free. He spent the following years in and out of prison for petty crimes such as larceny and breaking and entering. While the decision in Foy Cooper's murder trial was reversed, police firmly believed Davis was the one responsible for her death. I'd like to take a quick break before discussing the next unsolved cold case in this episode to tell you about a new book available for middle grade readers. Over a hundred years ago, a violent white supremacist mob raided, bombed, and essentially destroyed 35 blocks of a thriving black neighborhood outside of Tulsa, Oklahoma, called Greenwood. It is estimated that as many as 300 members of the community were killed and thousands of others were left homeless. The cause of this catastrophic event was the accusation that a young black man had allegedly assaulted a 19-year-old white female. A middle school teacher in St. Louis, Sue Roslowski, has published a book about the massacre called Greenwood Gone, Henry's Story. Here is a synopsis of the book. 12-year-old Henry Simmons has lived his entire life in Greenwood, Oklahoma, a district in the northern part of Tulsa. He's loved by his parents and neighbors, annoyed by his little sister, and protected by his community, a neighborhood full of hardworking, successful black people just like his mama and daddy. People call Greenwood Black Wall Street, and Henry plans to grow up there until he becomes a famous writer or baseball player, or both. Sure, he sees racism firsthand when he goes with his daddy to White Tulsa, but for most of his life, as long as his friends and neighbors stay in Greenwood, the white folks of Tulsa don't cause too much trouble in Henry's life. Until May 31, 1921. That's the night Henry's life changes forever. His family's life changes forever. All the neighborhoods of Greenwood change forever. Because 19-year-old Dick Rowland, a black shoe shiner working in Tulsa, is accused of assaulting a white female elevator operator. That accusation and Dick's arrest turn into 12 hours of terror for Greenwood residents. And Henry and his family are right in the middle of the chaos, hate, and massacre. Can love win even a small victory in the face of hate? Henry will find out. Told from Henry's point of view, the historical fiction novel is appropriate for readers ages nine and older. All of the proceeds from Greenwood Gone, Henry's story, will be donated to benefit the residents of Greenwood. You can purchase your own copy on Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, and all other major booksellers. I'll include a link in the show notes. 
And now, let's get back to the episode. I'd like to talk about Franklin Freeman next. In 2002, David Aaron Moore wrote a series of articles for Charlotte Creative Loafing about a colorful and charismatic fixture around Charlotte, Franklin Freeman, also known as Riri. And these pieces eventually turned into a detailed chapter of his book, Charlotte, Murder, Mystery, and Mayhem. The gregarious 35-year-old Freeman loved people and animals, as evidenced by his work at a pet grooming salon called Posh Pets. But he was also a very unique individual who, by today's terminology, would have been considered more comfortable described as gender fluid. Freeman enjoyed dressing in women's clothing and performing as Aretha Scott while lip-syncing Aretha Franklin's R&B classics at Olean's, a gay bar that used to be located in Charlotte's Dilworth neighborhood. Riri was found shot to death on June 7, 2002, at the corner of Church and Liddell Streets in Charlotte. His death remains unsolved, but there are many in the community that believe Riri's death was an inside job and had to do with testimony he was supposed to participate in involving a sergeant with the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Department. To understand the full story, we'll have to go back to an evening five months before Riri was fatally shot. On January 8, 2002, a vice detective with the police department named Michael Marlowe finished his shift around 1.30 a.m. and headed up to the eighth floor of the police department's parking deck for an after-hours drinking party. This was something that apparently had been going on for a while, but administration chose to ignore it. About 45 minutes later, Marlowe left the party in his unmarked patrol car, but instead of heading home, he went to North Davidson Street, an area known for a heavy presence of prostitutes. This was also an area Riri frequented, where he would dress in women's clothing and offer services to Johns, who stopped by, as a way to fund an unfortunate drinking and drug habit he had developed. It's hard to know exactly what happened next, because both Michael Marlowe and Riri told differing stories. According to Marlowe, Riri jumped into his car and refused to get out unless Marlowe gave him $20. An altercation followed, and Marlowe ended up firing his gun at Riri and radioed for backup. Two officers, M.H. Mack and D.J. Aldridge, responded to the scene, where they confronted Riri after he had fled the scene and arrested him for assaulting an officer. Franklin Riri Freeman ended up spending eight days in jail while the department tried to sort out what had really happened that night. He was eventually released, and all charges dropped. The Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Department released a statement that said Officer Marlowe had let Riri, who was dressed in women's clothing that night and working as a prostitute, into his unmarked patrol vehicle. He fired at Riri over the argument about money and then hit a beer can he had in the car before calling for help. Once the statement was released, Marlowe resigned from the department, and the two officers who had assisted him that night were fired. Their supervising officer, a Sergeant Carl Boger, was given a 30-day suspension for not properly investigating the incident. While Riri felt vindicated when he received an official letter of apology from the police chief on April 22nd of that year, he still decided to sue the police department and the city on grounds of assault, false imprisonment, and civil rights violations. Riri was scheduled to testify in a hearing on June 12, 2002, 
regarding Sergeant Boger's suspension, and he was appealing it. Five days before the hearing, Franklin Riri Freeman was discovered murdered on a North Church Street sidewalk in Uptown Charlotte. An autopsy revealed the cause of death was a gunshot wound to the leg that lacerated his left femoral artery and vein. There were a few other small bruises and abrasions on the body, but no major trauma other than the fatal wound. To many, the timing of Riri's death seemed suspicious, as it was close to the hearing. He was supposed to participate in involving the January 8th incident and repercussions that followed in the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Department. But the police chief at the time, Daryl Stevens, claimed anyone who ever had a run-in with Riri could be considered a suspect. There are many in the community who still believe his death was swept under the rug. To date, the death of Franklin Riri Freeman remains an unsolved cold case. And finally, I want to talk about a triple homicide that took place in Hendersonville, North Carolina in 1966. Having grown up in the Asheville area, I'm very familiar with Hendersonville, and in college I worked as an editorial intern for the Times News during my junior year. I had not heard about this crime, though, until very recently. I spent some time studying it. A reporter named Jenny Jones-Giles, who grew up in Hendersonville and went to work for the same newspaper I had interned at, did extensive research and reporting for a 40th anniversary series on the murder in 2006. She was a teenager in the area when the murder took place. Here is some of what I was able to glean from the articles I read. On July 22, 1966, two men disposing of some tree limbs and brush off North Lake Summit Road came across what they thought was a mannequin. Upon further inspection, they were stunned to realize they were looking at the murdered bodies of two men and one woman. They were arranged in a semicircle. The men were clothed, but the woman's body was missing clothing and showed signs of a sexual assault. One of the men had a pair of crutches arranged across his body in the shape of a cross. All three had been bludgeoned to death, and two of the victims had a large amount of puncture wounds on their necks and chests. How they got there, and what the connection between the 61-year-old woman found with two younger men was, still remains a mystery. The two men were Vernon Shipman and Charles Glass. They were well-known in the small community of Hendersonville, as they worked together at a music store called Tempo Music Shop. Shipman, who was 43, also worked at the North Carolina Employment Security Commission. He and Charles Glass, age 36, bought the music store together and Glass managed the day-to-day operations. The two men were known in town to be gay, which, if you can imagine the time period they were living in, caused all sorts of rumors to swirl when they were first reported missing. In fact, The retired police chief at the time was reported as saying, both being homosexuals, we thought they were off partying someplace. Charles Glass was a very interesting character. He was a fan of blues and rock and had even written and recorded a single called Screamin' and Dyin' that was written up in Cashbox magazine, a big deal back in the early 1950s. He loved to entertain and often hosted dinner parties for up to 100 people at his home, which was filled with Asian artifacts and decor. He also frequented nightclubs and broke his leg one night not long before his murder, which is why he was on crutches. Vernon Shipman was quiet but friendly, and his family had roots in the Hendersonville area going all the way back to the late 1790s. Like Glass, 
He also liked entertaining and having dinner parties at his home. The female victim found with the two men was a woman named Louise Shoemate. While she had family in Hendersonville, she actually lived in Asheville and worked at Taylor Instrument Company in the town of Arden. She was 61, but her co-workers thought she was much younger. She kept to herself and lived in an apartment that didn't even have a phone. She enjoyed taking photographs in her spare time. Shipman and Glass were last seen about five days before their bodies were discovered, driving on the outskirts of town on July 17th in Shipman's white and blue 1962 Ford Fairlane. They were supposed to meet a friend for dinner that evening, but failed to pick the man up at the hotel he was staying at. Some residents reported seeing the two men around 6.30 p.m., but they had two passengers in the back seat, a woman and a man wearing sunglasses. No one recognized the two individuals in the back seat. On Wednesday, July 20th, Shipman's car was found near his home. But as investigators dug deeper, they realized some local teens had found the car somewhere else, keys still in the ignition, and moved it to his residence. It was parked in the weeds and grass about six miles from the crime scene when they found it. Shoemate was last seen leaving her apartment around 4.30 p.m. that Sunday afternoon. Her car was found abandoned near the French Broad River, windows rolled down, and keys still in the ignition. Her purse was hanging on the door handle. There was a camera in her purse, but no pictures had been taken. The original theory was that she had been in the area picking blackberries, and the murderer stumbled upon her with the two male victims. But there was never any evidence found that she was there to pick blackberries. There were numerous suspects over the years, but according to the reporting by Giles, in 2007, the retired police chief of Hendersonville, Bill Powers, said he believed a man named Edward Thompson Jr. was responsible. Thompson had gone on a kidnapping and murder spree that took place from May to July in 1968. He traveled throughout North Carolina and Virginia, raping five people and murdering two. Along the way, he confessed to various people that he was responsible for the 1966 triple homicide in Hendersonville. He lived in town at the time, and when his home was searched after he kidnapped his first two victims in 1968, investigators found every single news article that had been published about Shipman, Glass, and Shoemate's deaths. Thompson never confessed to the authorities that he had murdered the three in 1966, and he died in 1986 in the state prison in Raleigh, taking any knowledge of the crime to the grave. All the physical evidence from the 1966 crime was destroyed except for the crutches that were found on Glass's body. Jenny Jones Giles published an article listing points of similarity that show Thompson may have been responsible for the 1966 murders, along with the timeline of his horrifying spree that took place during the summer of 1968. It is all circumstantial evidence, but it paints a very compelling picture. This brings us to the conclusion of this bonus episode of Missing in the Carolinas. I'll be taking some time off from the podcast this summer, and will be working on some research for future episodes. Be sure to subscribe or follow the show wherever you listen to your podcasts, so you'll be the first to know when new episodes are available. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
We're also now on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. Don't forget to check out the historical fiction children's book, Greenwood Gone, Henry's Story, by Sue Roslowski. A link to the book is listed in the show notes. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing provided by Mia Robertson. Thanks so much for listening.